Hello, Ryerson. It's Friday, March 13th, and this is Blue and Gold. From the Ryersonian, I'm your host, Sarah Chu. And I'm your host, Latoya Powell. Tensions have been running high on campus since the Ryerson Student Union filed its lawsuit against Ryerson for $2.7 million. This came after the university announced it was cutting ties with the RSU as its official student government in late January. As of March 9th, the Superior Court has approved the injunctions requested by the RSU. This means Ryerson will have to recognize the RSU as its governing student union and transfer withheld student union fees to them until a future civil trial. Before that, the Continuing Education Student Association of Ryerson, or CSER, and the Canadian Federation of Students, or CFS, was giving intervener status in the court proceedings. Our reporter, Katie Swires, will update us on what is to come in the story. The voting period for the Ryerson student government structure election closed on Thursday, March 5th, and the results came out on Friday, March 6th. Ryerson Undergraduate Students Alliance won the undergraduate student government elections, and Ryerson Graduate Students Union is the new graduate choice. Katie's going to tell us when the elections for the new positions will be held and what last week's election results will mean for Ryerson students moving forward. In this age of corporate-funded research, how is academic freedom protected? Ryersonian editor Talene Loschiavo joins us to discuss her new story on the consumerization and corporatization that is taking over universities. Hey, Katie. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. So the Superior Court approved the RSU injunction against Ryerson. This means that the school will have to temporarily reaffirm the RSU as its official student union and transfer all withheld student fees to them. The legal dispute will be resolved at a civil trial that's still to come. So what part does this injunction play in the overall court case? Well, the injunction is actually pretty separate from the overall court case. So um, they, the RSU filed this pretty quickly after they put their statement of claim in, which is what you put in to start a lawsuit. So this is, it was like all pretrial stuff. So one thing the judge said very clearly on Friday, March 6th in court was, you know, the outcome of this and what we're talking about here, it doesn't actually, like, it's not the trial itself. It doesn't impact the trial. It was either the judge that said that or one of the lawyers I talked to, but basically one of the legal counsel, someone official, was making that very clear. See, the injunction is something very separate, and it was essentially put in place to, like, A, so the RSU can get their student fees, which is, like, the vast majority of their revenue, which they need to be able to stay in court to actually have the lawsuit. So if they didn't have their fees remitted, the chances are they wouldn't have survived. They wouldn't have actually been able to go through with the lawsuit. So they need that money back, and the injunction gave that to them. It was also because, like, if the injunction did not come through, as we know, Ryerson was in the process of, like, facilitating creating an, uh, essentially a new union or student government to replace them. So they would have ceased to exist before the lawsuit finished. And that was the main order of the injunction. So it's fairly separate. It's all pre-trial stuff. But it basically gives the RSU the ability to survive through trial. So what did the RSU argue in court? 
So um, court on Friday was quite long. It uh, jumped around a couple things, but it was an injunction hearing. So the only decision the judge made was in regards to whether or not the RSU should get that injunction. So they did argue that they should have it on three accounts. So first, there was a lot of talk about their operating agreement, which Ryerson terminated on January 24th, which kicked off this whole entire thing. And that's the operating agreement from 1986. Now, if you read that entire thing, there isn't really a termination clause in there. There is a final thing at the end where students can choose to separate from the university, but it has to be done through referendum. So there is a mechanism for getting out of this contract, but there isn't like an actual like you can terminate this clause. And one thing that came up in court is the fact that even though this agreement is from 1986, so it's what, 30 some years old, 30 do somebody do the math? However, um, the RSU has existed in different iterations, different names, essentially since the start of Ryerson. So it's not just been like a 30-odd-year partnership. It's been the entire history of the institution. We're talking 70-plus years. So the next thing that the RSU's lawyers argued, even if there was a way that this could be terminated, which Ryerson did argue they could do under common law principles, that they were, they should have had notice. Basically, there should have been like appropriate notice that, hey, we're exiting this agreement and it shouldn't have been like as abrupt as it was, as messy as it was. Services shouldn't have been interrupted. We did a really good story at the Ryersonian about how like academic advocates for the RSU were not allowed to represent students because of what Ryerson did. So the second argument was that they should have had notice, appropriate notice, and they weren't given any. And the judge in his ruling um, for the injunction saying that he gave it to the RSU said, well, if we take out all the stuff about contracts and contract laws, if that's what he was talking about, I'm not a law school expert. The RSU was able to prove that, yes, there would be irreparable harm to them because without the injunction, they would literally cease to exist. They've been surviving without their student fees for over a year. They've been, the university has actively been withholding them since the credit card scandal last year in January 2019. And because of the mechanism of when to really release student fees, they actually haven't had their student fees since like November 2018, but it's been actively withheld from 2019. So they were going a little bit dry finances. And the fact that like without the injunction, as we talked about, like there would be a new student union or government to replace them. So these were like their main arguments. And they did touch on the fact that like there are essentially three parties involved in this entire lawsuit. So there's Ryerson, there's the students of Ryerson, and then there's the RSU. And without this injunction, harm comes to two parties, irreparable harm to one, which is the RSU. But both students and the RSU are harmed by the actions of the university because services have been disrupted. Like if you talk to anyone from clubs, it's not operating like how it was last year. So those were the three main arguments of the RSU for the injunction. All right. So on the other side, what did Ryerson argue? So um, Ryerson's argument was there had been a horrible breach of trust by the RSU and the actions with the previous executive last year of the whole credit card scandal. And they had completely lost faith in the union and they could not keep collecting fees on behalf of the union from students, which is what they do. It's written into a 1986 operating agreement that they must collect the fees on behalf of the union and then give it over. And they were saying they were protecting students by severing this relationship with an obviously not functioning union. 
But they were saying that, like, even if there is no termination clause in this 1986 operating agreement, that under, like, common law principles that they could, they didn't have to stay in this contract with an organization that was essentially not functioning was their big order. It was a very long day. Their uh, lawyer, um, Mr. Hall, went second. It was mainly talking about how they could terminate this, how the injunction, it, it wasn't necessary. And a really big thing that they kept bringing up in court was the next student government process. So a good bit of context to remember is that the results of the election for the proposals and the structure that there would be going forward if Ryerson moves ahead with this new student government process, those came out the same day as the injunction hearing. They actually came out like the results came out about an hour before the hearing started. So you have these lawyers and these judges talking about this thing that's happening in real time because, of course, this isn't in evidence yet because they haven't had time to submit it. And they're talking about how the fact that they're doing this, one of the closing arguments for um, Mr. Hall, the lawyer for the for Ryerson, was that students are not being harmed because there will be a student union at Ryerson. The question is who's running it. And while the RSU might not like it because they won't be the ones in charge, there will be a student union representing students and there will be services. It ended up being a fairly big argument for them, which is very interesting, seeing as every time I asked like the university or the next student government process, why they had such a condensed timeline and why they needed everything done by March 6, the answer, even in court, came down to exams. We need to have this in place before students write their final exam. And I think this is something like the judge even found interesting. Like he kept saying, like, why does this have to happen so quickly? Why does this have to come in now? Like, why can't you just wait for the lawsuit to run its course, come to a decision, and then at the end, start something next September? So that was a very interesting argument. I think a lot of people had on both sides thought this would be something of question going in. And if you read the decision for the injunction that the judge granted for the RSU, he has a comment about how the Ryerson's argument that harm would come to this process they started isn't really an argument because it's like it's essentially a mess of their own making. They undertook this process at their own risk because they started doing this after the RSU had already filed in court that they were suing over the termination of the 1986 operating agreement. So yeah, to wrap it up, essentially... Ryerson's arguments, yep, union wasn't working, we could do this under common law, and no harm came to students because we're putting in a process for them. So what are the next steps in this case? What can we expect in the civil trial? Well, I think something really interesting, if you read through um, the de- the judge's decision um, for the injunction, which the Ryersonian has posted in full on the article, by the way, um, if you go down to the end of it, he talks about how he thinks that this is literally a miscommunication between two groups that does not need to be before the courts, and they should consider mediating. So while I do think this, this the trial will continue, the lawsuit will continue, um, and it will begin in earnest... This is a judge that has really like kind of pushed for like you two just need to sit down and have a mediated conversation. This does not really necessarily need to go before the courts, which is interesting because a lot of groups behind the scenes have been trying to put pressure on Ryerson to open talks with the RSU again. And I did ask them at one point after the last RSU election if they'd consider reopening negotiations. And 
a reply that came via Jen McMillan, um, Vice Provost Students Ryerson, was essentially that, no, as far as the university was concerned, the next student government process had started. And if the RSU wanted to talk, they should join that and then be elected the next union and then they can have a conversation. So it's interesting that we're kind of being the judges kind of pushing for them to go back to the original, which is like go back to the negotiating table and work things out as opposed to moving through with the lawsuit. But one thing Ryerson's um, legal counsel brought up a lot in the in the hearing on March 6th was the fact that like they tried for a year to have like a negotiation with the RSU and sign a new operating agreement after the whole thing with the credit card scandal and how that didn't move forward and how the RSU was um, negotiating bad faith. Something that came up an awful lot was the fact that the promised financial audit, forensic audit of their expenses with credit cards was not a forensic audit. It ended up being a financial review. So they, they were arguing that this shows that there was a, there was like a, bad faith, that they weren't actually negotiating well and that there was some level of deception. Interesting enough, one thing I haven't had a chance to ask anyone from Morrison about is the fact that like they were arguing this, but no one found out the fact that the forensic audit wasn't a forensic audit until the operating agreement had already been terminated because that didn't come out until February and the operating agreement was terminated at the end of January. So that's interesting, but like most likely, there will still be a civil lawsuit going forward, but several parties have been putting a lot of pressure on Ryerson to just go back to the negotiating table and talk to the union that they have and now must recognize that they have. Moving to a different piece of student news, the election results came out last week on Friday as well, as you pointed out. So the Ryerson Undergraduate Students Alliance won, but how does the RSU injunction impact these results? Yeah, so that's pretty much up in the air right now, because according to the judge, they have to honor um, the operating agreement. They have to recognize that the RSU is the student union right now. And if they're recognizing that the RSU is the student union for the duration of the lawsuit, which lawsuits can go for a long time, there's no set, to my knowledge, there's no next set court date, they can't keep on with this uh, election process because like they have to recognize that they already have a union if they're recognizing that they already have a union they can't keep up with this so i don't have confirmation yet to my knowledge the ryersonian does not have confirmation that the next doing government process is kind of put on hold for now but i think it is a safe logic jump to say that they can't continue with that and abide by the injunction order and do what the courts mandated them to do so what is to come you know what? None of us are fortune tellers. It's hard to tell, but I think it will be an interesting case for those that are interested in civil law. The immediate stuff right now is I think it's safe to say that the next student government process is on hold. Perhaps the two parties will listen to what the judge said in a statement and that this doesn't have to be a lawsuit. Just get back to the negotiating table, you two. RSU is the union. They have represented students since the start of Ryerson in one form or another. I mean, they've changed names a ton of times. But their organization has existed in some form or another since the beginning. And I think one thing we all know is that students need a union on campus. They need those services. They need that advocacy. So in some way or another, whether or not this case kind of follows the University of Ottawa, which had something similar um, where their union, there was a scandal and essentially it came down and the university helped revive them in a different form. If we follow that track, 
or if like the RSU emerges victorious in this lawsuit and they stay the union. Regardless, students will have a union in some way. It's just going to be a very messy, interesting way going forward. And I think one very interesting big difference between U of O and Ryerson, they had a referendum. They had a referendum where they asked Ottawa U students, do you want to replace your previous union with this new one we created? And when I emailed the university asking if there's going to be a referendum, and this was before the injunction came out, but they said no. They said that the next student government process, like the last election for structures that they had, that showed the will of the students and they don't need to have a referendum. So I think these are questions that students should be asking about, like how quickly this is happening, the balance of power between these two structures. And yeah, it's annoying to be caught in the middle. Everyone's been making the joke about mom and dad getting the divorce. But like, it is a very interesting argument that's happening that will have some rather significant legal consequences, I think, going forward if it does continue the trial. It's a wait and see is where we're at. Thank you so much for coming in and talking to us today. Thank you. Universities were originally formed as a social contribution to society to help educate, inform, and improve the skill level of the workforce. However, some would argue that the critical analysis component of these institutions is operating for capitalist benefits rather than social benefits. Ryersonian editor Talin Loskiavo joins us today to talk about her story on how university students are being viewed as consumers rather than students. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yes. So let's start this conversation off by explaining what consumerization is. Yeah, for sure. Um, So based on the research that I've done and speaking to James Turk, as well as Robert uh, Chernomez, uh, those are the two sources that I interviewed for my story. It basically speaks to the consumerization of students. So as with universities, um, typically the priority with the university is education, right? It's that uh, free inquiry Um, that exchange between a professor and a student, that mutual learning experience. And so what is happening with the consumerization of students is that we're looking at universities as more of a business. So it's about how universities and um, the students that come from these universities can contribute overall to economic growth rather rather than that organic um, exchange of free-flowing knowledge and just that organic sense of academic freedom and inquiry. So we're kind of losing that, and then things are kind of moving more towards um, like technical, a technical type of knowledge. So it's more about the, the product that we get as we graduate, you know, those performance indicators, like when you leave school um, and you get a job, how much money are you making in six months? So those performance indicators um, are being prioritized, but then you're losing out on things like, what did you really take away from that university experience? Are you a better person? Do you have a better understanding of the world? So consumerization, the consumerization of students is kind of jeopardizing those um, like critical values you know, that come with a university education. Mm-hmm. And can you speak more about like the impacts this is having on traditional educational um, style? 
Yeah. One of the biggest things that I learned, um, because I didn't know much about this topic going into it, was just that, you know, because of the fact that there is such an emphasis of importance on those performance indicators, we're going to see a lot of, um, like, classes towards, like, business and technical um, courses that will, you know, give you the skills to succeed in the workplace. But then there's going to be a bit, like, of a lack of like the humanities or English or history courses, Mm -hmm. which are arguably just as important, um, maybe in fact more so because you learn how to read and write and think critically and also just think about these social issues that are so important in society today, like, um, you know, racism, sexism, uh, climate change. Um, Robert Chernomas, who I spoke to, he was saying a lot how like it's really important to know about these issues because um, just as we go into society and we're making political choices and voting and things like that, we need to know about these issues. Um, a change in just like we've already seen a change in uh, class offerings. Also, just like where funding is going towards these certain classes. So mm-hmm. more funding is going to go more towards like business and um, professional studies, things like that, as opposed to the humanities. Yeah. Question for you is why should uh, current and incoming students care about this? Well, it completely dictates our learning experience, uh, for one. So, I mean, I know for a fact that coming to university, I love the idea of um, having a prof that challenges me, that, um, you know, makes me think. And if you're going to be at a school that is prioritizing you know, that business output, and they're treating you like a consumer, does that mean that I'm going to be getting the best education? Like, are they just going to be appeasing me? Am I just going to be getting an A because the customer is always right? That's what James Turk pointed out to me. And that made me think a lot because um, we're not always right. And we're supposed to be, you know, we're supposed to be challenged to think about new ideas and new concepts. So it's going to impact the type of education that we have. And also just funding in general, like, it's going to impact things like um, class sizes, the variety of classes. So maybe we're not going to be able to pursue all the things that we're interested in if there isn't that funding towards the classes that we want to take. And uh, tuition as well. That's another big uh, thing to think about um, because tuition is rising. So then it kind of reinforces that idea of inequality, you know. It's not easily accessible to everybody. Mm-hmm. Is there anything students can do to prevent this or do it at any means? Um, yeah, absolutely. So when we think of students and the part that they play within this entire thing, we got to think about student unions, graduate programs. So they're a really critical part of the university because they challenge the system. You know, they're going to fight against rising tuition um, and also like an access to a broader spectrum of courses, um, academic freedom as well. So it's really important to just maybe be informed and try to, you know, if you feel strongly about this, really own your voice and fight for what you believe in in this case. I mean, because this really is something that's been happening for the past, like it's not a recent idea. It's been happening for like easily a, a century. So if I think it's an important thing to look into and yeah, for students to fight for that, that would make a big difference. Everyone's voice matters and counts. 
Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. If you, our listeners, want to learn more about either consumerism, corporatization, or even power structures within the universities, go check out the Ryersonian.ca to read our editor's articles. Here's what else we're following this week. Tim Horton's Roll Up the Rim to Win contest is back this week, running from March 11th to April 7th. The coffee shop company is removing Roll Up the Rim paper cups in light of the coronavirus spread. Since they do not want their employees handling winning tabs that have touched people's mouths, the contest will happen digitally. During the first two weeks of the contest, cash registers in stores will be randomly picking winners for free donuts and coffees. The rest of the prizes, like 2020 model cars, smart TVs, and prepaid cash cards can be won through Tim Horton's mobile app. Each time customers buy an eligible drink in-store, they will get their app scanned and receive up to three digital rolls on the app. A total of $30 million worth of prizes will be up for grabs these next four weeks. So don't wait, Ryerson. As reports of COVID-19 continue to grow, conferences, entertainment companies, and convention hosts are starting to take precaution. On Tuesday, health officials put out a mitigation strategy advising people to reduce mass gatherings by staggering arrival times, offering virtual or live streaming options, and by changing the event program to reduce high-risk activities. They are also advising event venues and hosts to increase hand-washing stations. So far in Toronto, major events in the upcoming weeks and months have been cancelled. This includes a Shopify convention, Pearl Jam concert, and Collision, a large technology conference that usually brings in 30,000 attendees, major celebrities, and industry innovators from around the world. Air Canada and WestJet are now waiving fees for flight changes from now till March 31st. Air Canada has also suspended all travels to and from Italy. All this and more are causing growing concerns about the implications of the coronavirus on the Canadian economy. Earlier this week, Trudeau announced the federal government will be providing $1 billion to the provincial healthcare systems to help with the coronavirus pandemic. Today, Ryerson's newest print issue will be on the shelves. This edition tackles big topics. As you just heard, we'll have three stories on the corporatization and consumerization of universities, we'll be covering online privacy, body positivity, and more. Plus, my story about sex trafficking survivors responding to Covenant House's Shoppable Girls campaign will be in this issue too. Pick up your copy of the Ryersonian today. Blue and Gold is a production of the Ryersonian and the Ryerson School of Journalism. Our hosts and executive producers are Sarah Chu and Latoya Powell. Our editor-in-chief is Talene Loschiavo, managing editor Isabel Kirkwood, instructors Peter Bacco-George and H.G. Watson, graphics by Brent Smith. Special thanks to Angela Glover, Lindsay Hanna, Daniela Oleru, and Gary Gold. Music this week provided by WeStar. My name is Sarah Chu. And I'm Latoya Powell. Thanks for listening.